What a wonderful time of worship. Thanks, y'all, so much for leading us in worship week in and week out. It's good to be with y'all today. We are in a series called What is a Biblical Worldview? And uh, we've been talking about several presuppositions. Today we're on presupposition number four, that God is the author of morality. We just described a presupposition as a rock-bottom foundational belief that's not testable in a science lab. I can't bring any empirical evidence to you to prove to you that this is real. Uh, but this is just a basic belief when we step out of the door on Monday morning, the world that we're going to engage and how we understand this world. And so that's our, um, our presupposition for today. I want to start with a uh, quote from President John Adams, who famously said, and I quote, Our Constitution it was made for a moral and religious people, he said, it is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. What is he talking about there? He's talking about self-rule. He's talking about the fact that our government was not going to have a monarch, we're not going to have a dictator, but rather we were, going to be, we were going to be ruled for the people and by the people. And so in order for us to have a government like this, John Adams recognized that there needed to be some sort of a moral agreed upon foundation or some sort of moral uh, source that we would all as a society would hold us together um, in, as one accord. And so that's what we want to talk about today, presupposition number four, that God is the author of that morality, that he is that moral source that we look to. And then we'll also talk about the role of conscience in all of this. In your aisles, there are some little blue pieces of paper. If you pick one of those up, you can. We're going to stand here in just a second to read from the scripture. If you want to get one of those, you can get one of those then. Um, I think I've been preaching here. It's been a long, many years I've been preaching here, and I've never had a handout. But this morning, it just felt like we needed a handout, so you got a handout today, and uh, maybe you can take a few notes along and follow along with me a little bit better. So let's stand and read together from God's Word. We're going to read Romans chapter 14, just one verse. Not even going to be standing that long. Verse 14. Here we go, Romans 14, verse 14. Uh, Paul writes, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Now, before we get to that verse, I got some questions that I need for us to ask and answer. And so, you, again, you can follow along on a little blue piece of paper. The first question is, what gives God the right to determine moral standards? Like, what makes God so special? Why can't I write the rules for my own life? Why can't my community leaders set the rules for our society? What makes God so special? Why is God so uniquely qualified to establish moral standards? Well, the first reason why God is qualified to set moral standards, is that because God is our creator. We established that in week one of the series, and that as our creator, God knows how we were designed to live. He knows what's going to provide the maximum happiness for us. He knows what's going to provide the greatest amount of fulfillment in our lives, and so an enjoyment in our lives. And so for that reason, God being our creator, he's qualified to set moral standards. Second, God is qualified to determine moral standards because God is holy. The word holy in the Hebrew means to set apart or to be separate from. And so it's the idea here that God is absolutely pure, that God's not contaminated by sin. God's never done anything wrong. God never will do anything wrong. Everything that God does, everything that God says, everything that God thinks, his motives, everything is completely pure and righteous. And so it's precisely because God is uncontaminated by sin and pure in every thought and motive and deed that he alone is positioned to declare what is right from what is wrong. Think about it from the opposite perspective. What if mankind was to set his own moral standards? What if each of us was to declare what was right in his own eyes? For me to say, hey, you know what? I think this is what's right, and so I'm going to live this way. Um, friends, that would result in anarchy and chaos. A pedophile could say, well, I think this is right, and so therefore I'm going to do this, and there would be no one to say that they're wrong. Uh, butchering of babies, sacrificing of children, euthanasia, the mass extermination of whole populations, all this could be justified on the basis of someone simply saying, well, I didn't see anything wrong with it. And so man would become a rule unto himself, 
No, friends, we realize that we have to have some external source declaring what is right and wrong for human society. You say, well, I don't think human society will ever allow something like that to happen. Oh, no. You think about it. Today, millions of babies are murdered in their mother's wombs before they ever reach, at, reach out into the world. Women are exploited through pornography, movies, and entertainment. There's no public outcry for any of that. Perhaps polyamory has become widely practiced in our society. It's just understood that you're going to have multiple partners throughout your life, and perhaps, in this case, at the same time. And friends, this is becoming more and more mainstream. You remember the children's song that we used to sing around the, around the playground, so-and-so and so-and-so, um, sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S, you kind of wait to you know, pick at somebody, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes the baby in the baby carriage. Well, friends, our society's got all that turned upside down. It's got the order of that completely in the reverse. Um, where the people, I mean, where are the people marching in the streets to bring these behaviors to a stop? Where is the moral indignation in our culture? Friends, it doesn't exist. That's why you don't see it. As we established last week, man is wholly corrupt. We have a sinful nature, a bent towards sin. Our natural inclination is to rebel against God and his way that we should live our lives. And because of that, we simply cannot be trusted. We cannot be entrusted with setting the moral standards for our society. If anything, what we do as human beings is we push the boundaries further and further away from decency. We push the boundaries further and further away into chaos and into disorder. If left to our own devices and with no accountability, society would degrade in a matter of a few generations. I think that we can all agree that we need a pure, holy, righteous God to speak into our world and into our society and set the moral standards, the moral tone for how we are to conduct ourselves and live our lives. You say, okay, Gordon, I get it. We need a moral foundation that's apart from us, something outside of us, speaking into our lives, into our sinful nature, and saying, look, this is not the way to live. Um, but here's my question, is how do we know what God's moral standards are? In other words, how do I know what God thinks is right? And how do I know what God thinks is wrong? How do I discern that? Uh, well, it's a great question, and the primary way that we figure that out is through the Bible. The Bible is God's truth in written form. I don't think I put that on your little sheet there, but let's repeat that with me if you would. God's, the Bible is God's truth in written form. One more time. The Bible is God's truth in written form. The Bible says of itself, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, that, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That is that Scripture did not originate in the minds of men, or in the hearts of men, but rather it originated with God himself. That God gave the words for the people who wrote down Scripture to write down. It's not that God gave uh, Paul the central ideas and said, Paul, now I want you to fill in the blanks on all these ideas that I've given you to write about. No, the Bible says that all of Scripture, start to finish, all of it was given by God himself. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along in the Holy Spirit. So again, what is the Bible? It is what God breathed. It is what God told man to write down. It is what God thinks. It is the product of the Holy Spirit, not of the wisdom of men. It is the product of the Holy Spirit, not of the devices or the musings of men. It is the product of the Holy Spirit speaking into the minds of men and telling them what to write. The Bible is God's truth in written form. As a result, y'all doing okay? Not thinking about your Christmas list, right? <laughs> Follow me now. We can look to the pages of Scripture to discover 
God's moral standards. For example, David wrote Psalm 119 and verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. A few verses later, verse 105, David writes, Your word, the Bible, is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. So if we're looking for moral standards, if we want to know what God thinks, then we need look no further than the pages of Scripture. You say, Gordon, I got another question. I'm hearing you talk up there this morning, but I got another question. Okay, shoot, our way. Aren't there a lot of rules in the Bible that we don't keep today? Rules like, stuff like, uh, you know, we're supposed to sacrifice, make these offerings in the temple. Stuff like uh, the food that we can't eat. Stuff like if somebody injures me, then I get to eye for an eye them back. I mean, it's in the scriptures, in Leviticus. I mean, it's, I mean, how do we make sense of all that? Are you suggesting that we are to go back to living according to the Old Testament rules? Is that what you're suggesting? That we're supposed to go back and we're supposed to follow all these rules? Well, that's a really great question, and it's central to understanding all of this. Um, let's kind of talk about the Jewish law system and how uh, classifications of law. There are three types of law under the Jewish religious system. The the first of those is civil, then ceremonial, and then moral. We'll talk about those in that order. The first is the civil law. Those are the laws that direct the people of Israel as a nation. Their governance, land disputes, your cow walked onto my land, fell in a pit. What are we going to do about that? This guy stole some stuff from me. How are we going to handle that? What's the judge supposed to do? What's supposed to be uh, the situation? How do, we, how do we punish that person? Again, civil issues, issues of governance. Things happen in life, and how do we sort all that out from a standpoint of us as a nation? The second branch, so that's one branch of the Jewish law system. A second branch is the ceremonial law. These are the rules that govern worship, the stuff that happened in and around the temple, stuff like sacrifices made for sin, stuff like making grain offerings, rules for the Sabbath. And then there was a third branch of the Jewish law, and that was the moral law, stuff like honor your father and your mother, thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not murder. Rules for sexual conduct. Those sorts of things. Again, these are the moral laws. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, there was no longer a need to observe the ceremonial law. The writers of the New Testament understand this. The writer of Hebrews talk, says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, He, Jesus, entered once and for all the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for us once and for all. We don't have to continue to make sacrifices in the temple because Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial aspect of the law. This is the thrust of much of what's written in the New Testament. The writers understand this, that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial sacrificial system. Therefore, we need not practice that anymore. Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision of a picnic blanket dropping down out of heaven. And there's all this meat on it, and it's got a whole bunch of food on it, and it's good stuff. There's some pork there. And he's thinking, oh, man, I'd love to dive in. Never have been able to eat any pork. But uh, anyhow, so this pork comes down, and God tells Peter to go ahead and eat of this. Now, again, if, he, if Peter was to eat of this meat that was on this picnic blanket, it would have been a violation of the ceremonial law. He was not supposed to eat this particular kind of meat. And, uh, so, but God's telling him to do it. And so look at Peter's response. Um, so Peter says, being a good Jew, he tells God, Acts chapter 10 and verse 14, by no means. You're telling me I can eat this, but there's no way I'm going to eat this, he says. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. To which God responds in verse 15, what I, God, have made clean, do not call common. In other words, Peter, you can have the pork sandwich. It's no longer off limits. 
The ceremonial law through Jesus is fulfilled. Just the same when Jesus declared that his gospel was open to both Jew and Gentile alike. Friends, that broke down the borders of who could enter into this relationship. That meant that you didn't have to be Jewish. That meant that you didn't have to be part of the people of, you could be part of the people of God and not be part of the nation of Israel. It went well beyond the nation of Israel, beyond the national borders. And so when it went into other nations like India, when it went into other nations like Rome, there was civil government already there in place. And so the civil law was no longer required to be observed. Uh, now that leaves us with the moral law, the moral law. Did you know that every moral law that is mentioned in the Old Testament is repeated in the New Testament. Every moral law in the Old Testament is repeated in the New Testament. Every one. So anyone who would say to you, if you were to mention something, oh, well, that's just something, some moral issue. Somebody would say, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. Well, no, the Old Testament stuff is actually in the New Testament. So it's the moral law consistent from one to the other. And so while the civil law is no longer needed, the people of God are extended beyond the borders of national Israel. They have civil governments of their own. And while the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Jesus, so we no longer need to observe it, the moral law remains. It does not change. It is a reflection of God's holiness, and God's holiness, friends, is unchanging. And so because of that, the moral law stands throughout human history. It is set. You say, Gordon, I see what you're saying. Three branches of the Jewish law, only the moral law carried over from Old Testament to New Testament. I got it, but I got one more question for you. What does any of this have to do with Romans chapter 14 and verse 14 we read at the beginning of this? And more importantly, what difference does any of this make to my life? Well, those are really great questions. Let's see if we can answer that. First of all, let me give you just a little context about Romans chapter 14 and verse... Y'all still doing okay? I guess I was throwing a lot at you. That's why the, the little handout. So Romans 14 verse 14, little context here. Paul is writing to uh, Christians in Rome, and amongst these Christians are Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ. And so they're watching the Gentiles eat this pork sandwich that they themselves still don't feel like they can eat. And so they're really upset about the fact that these Gentiles are not behaving like good Jews should do. They're still hanging on to some of that ceremonial law. And so Paul's response to that is, verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. In other words, if your conscience tells you that it's wrong to eat the meat, even though God told Peter that it's okay, then for you, it is wrong. For you, it is sin because you're violating your conscience. You know, when you've done something your whole life, think about this. These Jewish people, they've, they've abstained from certain things their whole life. And now it's God, Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial aspect of the law, right? And it's, they don't have to observe that stuff anymore. Jesus fulfilled it. Um, and so now they're free. They have license to partake, right? And so when you've done something like that your whole life, and now all of a sudden somebody comes along and says, well, no, now it's okay. Well, friends, you know, your, your conscience doesn't just flip a switch like that, right? I mean, it takes time. It takes a lot of deliberation. It takes a lot of personal reflection and study. It may take generations to change the hearts and minds of people away from what was considered taboo or morally wrong. And this is largely what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14. He's dealing with first-generation Jews who have been given license to do something that formerly they were not allowed to do. And they were struggling. Their conscience would not just roll over and go away um, on the issue of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. It was still very much alive inside of them. Look again at verse 14. Paul writes, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, 
In other words, I know in my head up here that this is okay. But in here, I'm still struggling. And I don't feel like, even though I know in my head it's okay and I, have, I, can, I can partake in this pork sandwich, I, in here, it just, it's going to taste bad. And I just don't feel like I can. And so in that situation, Paul says, here's what you're supposed to do. And this is the biblical principle regarding morality. Don't miss this. Paul says, verse 14, second half, nothing is unclean in itself. Here's the rule. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Let me explain what Paul just said. If your conscience will not allow you to eat the meat that has been sacrificed to idols, even though we have the freedom to do this now because the ceremonial law has been fulfilled, despite that freedom, if you think that it's wrong to do it, then in that case, for you, Paul says, it is unclean. He repeats this again in verse 23 of Romans 14. He says, but whoever has doubts, that is doubts about whether or not you can partake in this, whether or not you can eat this stuff, he says, if that's you, then that person is condemned if he eats because your eating is not from faith, and whatever is not done from faith, Paul says, is sin. He gives a really clear qualification here of what sin is. In other words, Paul says, if there's not a biblical prohibition against a certain action, but your conscience is fighting you on it, and you do it anyway, then that is considered sin, and God will hold you accountable for it. In summary of all that I've been saying here, Paul is saying, let me, here's the statement, let your conscience be your guide, where there is no specific biblical prohibition. Let your con- That's what Paul's saying here. Let your conscience be your guide where there is no biblical specific prohibition. Now, I got a diagram for us here. You can check this out. Um, kind of gives you a visual. I'm a visual learner. Kind of gives you a visual of how Paul defines sinful behavior. He says it comes, from, it comes to us through two means here. One is a violation of God's moral law. And that stands over and above anything else. Um, that if God's, where God's moral law speaks and speaks clearly on an issue, then we know, even, no, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. doesn't matter if the culture out there thinks it's okay. If God's word says this is wrong, then that's wrong. Because who sets the moral standards in a biblical, Christ, biblical worldview? God does. He's the author of morality. And so we give him that right. And so if there's a, if there's a specific biblical prohibition against a particular behavior, activity, whatever, then that's, point, that's number one, we consider that sinful behavior. But also, Paul adds to that, enlarges the scope here and says, look, if, even, if there's, even if we're given license to certain behaviors, even if we're given license to do certain things, but our conscience is bothering us about it, then in that case, Paul says, just the same, Romans 14 and verse 14, it is sin for you, even if you think that it's uh, unclean. He says, don't violate your conscience on that. Um, you know, what our culture has done is this, and here's my next little slide here. They've taken God's moral law out of the picture. And they said, let's just govern ourselves according to conscience. Which, who becomes the author of morality in that scenario? You do. I do. Each of us. We're back to us becoming a law or a morality unto ourselves man writing the laws according to what he thinks. As John Adams said, that um, our Constitution has been formed for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Friends, the choice is before us. 
Am I going to follow the culture? Am I going to push past what God thinks in order to live how I want to live? Who is going to be the God of my life? Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it represents to us. Lord, we see so many aspects of our culture living in rebellion against what you have clearly articulated as sin. God, may we not be drawn in to follow the changing morals of a world that is in rebellion. But Lord, may we be drawn to your timeless truth. Any attempt on our part, Lord, to live against your moral law will always result in self-destruction. It will always result in sadness and heartbreak. God, we submit ourselves to you again today to say, God, we want to surrender ourselves to your authority over our lives. This includes the issue of what's right and what's wrong. Lord, it is best entrusted to your hand. As we gather around this table now to be reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body, or we're we are reminded that even when we do sin, even when we do violate your law, that there is forgiveness. And so, God, we are grateful. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us today to follow after you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw us to become a people who are more fully surrendered to your control over our lives. Lord, we want to please you. So, Lord, we give you this space. We ask that you would speak to us in it. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. We invite you to share in the communion elements at this time, and then we'll conclude with a time of worship.